0: Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look, delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. 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 Yeah. Let it bump up.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knocks Podcast. My name is Dan Pavali, coming at you this time without my co-host, Andrew Bailey. But we are super incredibly pleased to be joined by Adam Spinella. He is the Washington and Jefferson assistant men's basketball coach, um, in addition to a writer for B-Ball Breakdown, um, NBA Math, and Fast Model as well. He does a whole bunch of stuff. We love talking hoops with him. Um, we are going to start rolling out our division previews. Uh, before I really get into that though, I just want to remind everyone, implore everyone, plead, beg, ask everyone to continue rating, reviewing and subscribing to us on iTunes. If you're listening to this and have not done that yet, I don't know what you're doing. Please take the 10 to 15 seconds out of your day to search Hardwood Knocks" on iTunes. Give us that five star review then feel free to, five-star rating, and then feel free to leave us a review with any feedback you might have or if you just want to build up Andy's ego. I know he really appreciates that. And we're asking that you start recommending us to people just to help us kind of continue to grow this nice little following and community that we've built. We really do appreciate everyone who listens and we appreciate anyone who has rated, reviewed, and subscribed to us that much more. As always, you can also get 15% off at the MBA Math Shop. That is mbamath.com slash shop promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. Now, I'm super excited to talk to Mr. Spinella, who you should be following on Twitter if you aren't already. He's at Spinella14, that's S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A 14, because I gave him the choice to pick whatever division basically that he wanted, with the, basically the only exception being he couldn't pick the Northwest division, because I know Andy would have a heart attack with him not being here and being able to tackle that division. He went with the Southeast Division which is just that just shows you how much of a basketball mind that he is. So, I'm super excited to to get into this with him, but we have to ask the question everyone dies to know from both Andy and any of the guests we have. Adam, how are you doing?
0: Dan, I'm doing great tonight. It's uh another good day for basketball because any day's a good day for basketball. And excited to dive in here to probably the one word I would use to describe the Southeast Division is lackluster.
1: Yeah, lackluster. Almost. I mean, not almost. Lackluster, top to bottom, really. Um, and I'll let you. You know, I'll let you pick where you want to start. Which team would you like to to roll through first?
0: You know, I, I'm uh, I'm sitting here and looking at things in alphabetical order. So why don't we just dive right in with the Atlanta Hawks, then, Dan?
1: Oh, everyone's favorite team, the biggest following in the NBA, of course. The Atlanta Hawks last year were 24 and 58. Um, they ended up ranking 27th in point differential, 26th in offensive rating and 26th in defensive rating. This is all according to cleaning the glass, which, um, chisels out garbage time, which is why I love it. Uh, so just to start with them now that their vitals are are out of the way, what was their I guess we can call this a general impression, your general impression of their offseason, or what do you identify as the biggest, most important move of their offseason?
0: Well, you know, it's it a surprise for what they did. We knew that they'd be rebuilding and retooling, that they're looking for younger pieces and taking on some bad salary or uh, absorbing contracts from elsewhere in order to get future draft picks. And they were successful in doing that this summer. By far, the most impactful move. Getting Trey Young. In the, I think they view him as their generational star, not just as a, a player on the court, but somebody who puts butts in seats because he, you know, let's face it, Steph Curry right now, that's the type of game that sells. That's what appeals to young fans. And from a business perspective, the Hawks really took a great step forward by adding Trey Young. They did well to get another first round pick uh, when they traded back to get him at fifth overall. And uh, I, I just think there are a lot of really intriguing, good young pieces on this roster.
1: What did you, the Trey Young thing? Do you think that's a move that they could potentially end up regretting because they miss out on Doncic, or is do you think yes, Trey Young is going to put butts in seats? Another underrated thing: a lot of people kind of wondered why they traded for Jeremy Lin. He comes with basically his own beat writing team. Uh, I remember (laughs) going to Nets games, and he has granted he was injured a lot while he was there, but there's just a throng of reporters that follows him around. He will put butts in seats. Um, But do you maybe just subscribe to the notion that Trey Young almost exited the NBA draft underrated, where everyone thought he was overrated because of what he can do as a passer and because of the value that is inherently ascribed to players who can not even just make shots off the dribble, but the willingness to shoot them has value in and of itself?
0: Yeah, I think he, he got a little bit underrated because his style of play suits so well for the NBA game based on the... You know, the spacing that is afforded around him, the amount of other players that can create their own shot or finish, something he did not have access to at Oklahoma. He was a one man show offensively. And then defensively, I mean when you're expending that much energy on offense, it you're you're not gonna be a plus defender. I don't care what natural tools you have. It just wears you down to have that much of an onus of offensive creation. So uh, I, I wrote an article for B ball breakdown kind of earlier in the summer right after Trey Young was drafted by the Hawks. I would encourage anyone who kind of doubts Young and his uh, NBA prowess to check that out because I I do think that there are a lot of positives to his game that will be reflected upon at the NBA level.
1: I believe that Trey Young is going to be good as well too, which probably bodes poorly for his future, unfortunately. (laughs) Did you see, this might be one of those teams where, and we're kind of going through this outline just to give everyone a preview of what's going to come through these. But is this one of those teams where we're looking at either their biggest loss of the offseason or worst offseason move that maybe doesn't have one of those? Or, or can you identify um, someone that they lost or just a move that they made that they perhaps should not have?
0: Yeah, for me, um, a lot of people put question marks around the Jeremy Lin move. I don't mind that because A, it sells tickets in the, in the interim. And B, they were able to get rid of Dennis Schroeder in, which was a very shrewd move, um, <laughs> and and Lynn, I think is you know for the the price that they paid and, and absorbing the Carmelo Anthony deal, I would I understand why they brought in Jeremy Lynn from that standpoint. So a lot of people poo pooed it when it happened. Now I think it makes sense and was worth it overall. The the poor move. I'm not an Alex Lynn guy. And they gave him yeah, two a years point. guaranteed, and that just—I'm not completely sold on that. If there's one team that should give him a shot, it's Atlanta. But a second year guaranteed is a little tough for me to swallow.
1: Yeah, that—that's actually a good point. I was probably struggling to think of a move. I'm indifferent to the Jeremy Lin one. It would have been hysterical. This never could have happened. But if they were just like, you know what, we're not going to waive Carmelo Anthony, and obviously he had a no-trade clause that he had to jettison as part of that deal, but uh, having Carmelo Anthony and Jeremy Lin on the same team again, and then you instantly talk about putting butts in seats. Um, they're just in an alternate universe where the Hawks didn't care about developing their kiddos. That would have been hysterical to watch, along with Trey Young, ultra hysterical.
0: Yeah, and and again, I, I think that you take a look, they signed Vince Carter this offseason too. That's a, a mentorship type of role, but they don't have a lot of veteran presence on this roster. I'd say Bazemore and Lin are the only two guys that that have deep experience and have been starters for a, a long period of time. But um, one little factoid I'll throw at you, Dan, which will show my disdain for Alex Lynn a little bit. He's seven feet tall. He played in 69 games last year. Nice. Yeah. And <laughs> 43 of his shots were blocked in 69 games. Oh, wow. He's seven feet tall. He, he played like 20 minutes a game he's just he's not an efficient finisher around the rim and there's something very mechanically wrong with his jump shot they've always said they being you know the smart internet people uh, have always said he's going to end up being a stretch 5 at some point he can't shoot so uh, you know he's a project that i just i don't know why we continually give guys that are drafted within the the lottery second third fourth chances to try to live up to the potential that we thought they might have at one point but i'm just i'm not a fan of len
1: uh, I'd be with you there. If on kind of the flip side of that argument, though, who do you see as the most likely breakout candidate for this team?
0: I'll uh, There's a lot of names out there because so many people that are either rookies or, or haven't really gotten minutes consistently in the past are finally having a path to do so in Atlanta. A couple of guys I really like are Amari Spellman. I, I thought that was a really shrewd pickup, but I don't know if he's the type of guy that can – can really contribute from from day one. I think Torian Prince is a name we all should around the league. Yeah, I know he's one of your guys. He's he's a really, really good two way player. He plays awesome on both sides of the floor. And then I'm also kind of intrigued by Justin Anderson. So you know, I'll throw a bunch of things at you and kind of see what sticks.
1: Torian Prince is I'm all in on Torian Prince. And from the trade deadline on last year, He's, granted, his usage was through the roof, but these numbers to me are insane. This is him. Uh, it's the final 28 games of the season after trade deadline. 17.8 points, uh, 4.3 rebounds, 3.3 assists, 1.3 steals. He shot 37.3% from three on 7.5 attempts per game. Uh, got to the foul line three times per game, shot 86.7% from there. The thing I was most intrigued by, he turned the ball over a bunch in the pick and roll, but the fact that he was running them is just like, that's kind of an untapped uh, weapon for him. And if you can get him to do that consistently, uh, where he can carry that secondary, that tertiary playmaking role, in addition to what he should eventually bring you on defense, um, maybe at the three and four spots, he's probably better off just guarding threes right now, but I could see a, a scenario where he gets better guarding fours. I feel like he's just not this superstar candidate, but he's just this real sleeper. Maybe that fringed star type prospect that a lot of people have not really paid enough attention to.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. And, and you know, the, the thing you, you talk about the turnovers and the pick and roll, when you have a point guard, that's not running the pick and roll, they need to be an effective shooter so that they can space the floor. And I'm not sure Dennis Schroeder was somebody we consider a knockdown catch and shoot three point guy. Uh, the spacing that's provided by having Trey Young and now with a coach in Lloyd Pierce who comes from Philadelphia that ran a ton of movement for their shooters in J.J. Redick and Marco Bellinelli last year, there's going to be a lot more space for a guy like Torian Prince to operate in those wonky pick and rolls where you know he's playing either the three or the four. Guys like Kent Bazemore can also be an additional ball handler. Like The role of Trey Young within that offense, even if he doesn't have the ball in his hands, is gonna open up opportunity for everyone else.
1: Yeah, Dennis Schroeder was not a catch and shoot guy. He was in the eighteenth percentile of spot up points per possession. He shot he had an effective field goal percentage of 38.1 on spot ups last year. So things will be opened up for everybody. I really and, agree with you there. Who do you look at on this team? Or actually really quick, what do you think of Kevin Herter? Is is that a guy probably not a breakout candidate, but is that someone who you think might be able to make one of those instant impacts?
0: Herder, I hardly know her. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's not somebody that I was incredibly high on through the draft process. Yes, he's a, a pretty good shooter. He's got some size. He played really, really well at the combine in Chicago, and that kind of jettisoned him up the draft board. I'm always a little bit cognizant of guys that come on a little bit late through that process, and kind of my my biggest theory through the draft process is that it really does matter for what college coach you played for and the system that you played in in terms of how quickly you can uh, you know, carry over your skills to the NBA. And Mark Turgeon at Maryland does not have a really strong track record of developing guys early in their career that make an impact at the NBA level. So I'm in a, a wait-and-see mode with Herter.
1: Who's the player most likely to be traded on this team?
0: Player most likely to be traded? I... It's it's tough because I think they did a lot of their damage already. You know they're they're a little bit over the, ca- the cap right now. I have them capping in just a, a little bit over 105 million. Um, if it were me, you know it, it would probably end up being a guy like Vince Carter that I think if if they get to the point where um, well he's a he's more of a release and, and sign yeah. with somebody else candidate than he is a trade. So yeah, screw it. I'll just say Baysmore.
1: I don't mind him at two years and $37.4 million, which is why I was a little bit taken aback that Dallas didn't want to absorb his contract in exchange for Wesley Matthews rather than give Atlanta that top five protected pick.
0: You know, yeah, and I, th- I think Bazemore does have a, a good amount of value. You know, I'd, I've kicked around in my head, and I'm not really sure how to structure it, but a deal that would get Bazemore to Utah and Derek Favors – in Atlanta where he'd be kind of the centerpiece five for them on his new contract, but I don't know if, you know, there's got to be some other moving parts in that. So that's just in my own head and Andy Bailey will hate me for it, but yeah.
1: Yeah. He'd be a good fit there, but I think Utah, part of me thinks Utah's really going to get after it uh next summer and try and sign like a Tobias Harris or Chris Middleton. Yeah. Dwayne Dedman would be another interesting candidate on that expiring contract to 7.2 million. They don't, Atlanta doesn't have a ton of bigs. Um, at the same time, if you trade him, you could experiment more with John Collins at the five. And I just think he has that, but you might be able to get something for him close to the trade deadline. If there's an injury elsewhere in the league, this is someone who shot the three ball fairly well last year, gives you a pretty good defensive rebounder, pretty mobile on the defensive end as well. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see them get something for him closer to the trade deadline.
0: Yeah, and and the thing that I like about that too is people forget because he's kind of sprung onto the scene late. Like, he's twenty nine years old. Like Dedmon does not have this right infinite ceiling that he's not like approaching yet. Like he's he's pretty pretty close to it, and you know he's got one more good contract in him after this year. So I don't I don't blame Atlanta if they're shopping him at all.
1: Is this team going to have a better defense or a better offense?
0: offense. Every young team has a better offense than they do with defense, and you take a look at their their best player, I would say is is either Trey Young or um or, or Torian Prince, and uh, I think both tend to be a little bit stronger on the offensive side than the defensive.
1: They were 8th in pace last year. That has to probably come up, right? That'll be exciting to watch. I want to watch Atlanta this year. I'm not going to lie. A lot of it's Trey Young, but you know I'm like a Torian Prince geek. I'm also still team believe in DeAndre Benbury, just in case you were wondering.
0: <laughs> so am I. Yeah. I'll, I, you know, they have a, so many intriguing young pieces. I've, I've loved Tyler Dorsey through the pre-draft process. And when he's not shooting 8,000 shots per game in summer league, <laughs> they, they have pieces that are really, really fascinating to me. And I want to see how they try to put it all together and build towards the future.
1: Here's some low-hanging fruit. Playoffs or nah?
0: <laughs> um, you know, I'm tempted to swing, but nah. <laughs> nah uh, you know, this this, this division's going to be tough because I'd say we probably have three of the five worst teams in basketball that we're covering. So there's not going to be a lot of suspense when it comes to who makes the playoffs and who doesn't. But that doesn't mean that these teams aren't worth talking about for the improvements that they can, can kind of gain throughout the year.
1: Will Atlanta win? Uh, fewer than twenty-four games, like it did last year.
0: Yeah, I think so. I think they take a slight step back in the win column, but they're they probably hover right around twenty. Um,
1: I am right there with you. That wraps up kind of the Atlanta Hawks snapshot. Uh, if we're gonna, you want to continue in alphabetical order?
0: Let's why, why
1: not? Right, All right. Let's move on to the Charlotte Hornets, who I have just absolutely eviscerated on this podcast um all of the off season just not pleased with what they've done um last season they were 36 and 46 and that was with kind of a post all-star break surge caked in they were 17th in point differential they were 10th in offensive rating and they were 17th in defensive rating all according to cleaning the glass um so we'll start here again <laughs> what was their best offseason move because I feel like I'm really struggling to find a good move that they made
0: uh yeah um you know I guess you gotta kind of go ahead and say it was it was getting bridges in the draft yeah, that's Really, I mean the only a lot of people talk about the Dwight Howard thing is addition by subtraction but Again, they add the money of Bismack Biyombo. It's a little bit less right now, so they dodge the luxury tax this summer, but they pick up his player option for, for next summer and will have to deal with 17 million next year. Why didn't they just buy out Dwight? Like if he's such a you know, it, it's so hard to say that getting rid of Dwight was a good move because they made this trade for him. He ended up accepting a buyout for something that would have got them beneath the luxury tax anyway, had Charlotte just done it themselves.
1: Right, he so. gave back almost five million dollars, and the yeah. trade that they made uh, with him saved them about seven point eight. I had it clocked in at, and it co- it cost them the number forty five pick in Hamadou Diallo, who I actually think might have a chance to stick in the NBA. I just, I if it's kind of as you said, once you get to a point in your off season where you you traded for Bismack Biombo as a value play, yeah, that's that's a problem.
0: Yeah, like what when we're surveying and looking at all the moves that they've made and kind of what they've done this offseason, it's hard to say. Like, okay, they gave, as you know, I'm not a big fan of giving out two-year guaranteed contracts to guys that I I don't think deserve two years guaranteed, and and Tony Parker would be one of them. Like, he's a little bit over the hill. What does he really add value-wise for them? So to me, it's got to be drafting bridges, and you – you hope that he becomes a really really good player.
1: I think the finally I the Tony Parker signing was stupid because I think it makes it less likely that they'll lean into a rebuild and trade Kemba Walker as they should. I do think the second year of his deal ended up being non-guaranteed, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um still don't understand it. Miles Bridges, I was sort of I don't want to say indifferent to him when it came to the draft, but do you look at him and th- Like, what do you see him turning into as an NBA player? Do you think he's going to provide that punch on the wings that this team so desperately needs?
0: So my biggest thing with Bridges, and I try to catch myself with this all the time, because really the only difference between a positionally versatile player and a tweener is how good they are, our perception of of kind of what type of player that they are, Mm -hmm. that they're the, the, the same adjectives that just describe a good player and a bad player. And I I hesitate to to use the adjective tweener for him. But at this point in his career, I don't know if he's a good enough shooter from actual NBA range consistently or if he's really tall enough, strong enough in the interior or Draymond-like enough in order to be kind of that small ball four. And because of that, I'm just not quite sure where to project him on a team where you got Michael Kidd-Gilchrist – and you've got Cody Zeller, two guys that could end up in the starting lineup that have never made more than three three three-pointers in an entire season.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and the thing with Bridges, too, was I know his three-point percentage was okay at Michigan's, better than okay, but it dipped a little bit um, during that second season, and he shot 40.9% on two-point jumpers, which really isn't great, especially when you're talking about almost 60% of those looks being assisted on. And so I kind of... I sort of question uh, that as well. What was the? And maybe you touched upon this with Dwight Howard, but I'm, I'm hoping you pick something else. What was their? What was the Hornets' worst move of the off season?
0: Oh boy, um, it's a lot to choose from. Yeah, well, oh, well, yeah, it's a tough one. I probably just absorb and I think that that ends up being the tough part. That if you're If you're embarking a little bit on the rebuild and kind of stuck in this nebulous that Charlotte's been in for the last few years, I don't understand why they paid to get off of uh, one year of Dwight Howard and picked up two of Bismack Biombo. I don't think that that really accomplishes anything of increasing their timeline.
1: I, I agree with you, but I'm, I just, I'm still miffed that they didn't, try harder to retain Trevian Graham. And I'm not saying that he's going to be this star, but he was an affordable 24-year-old wing who shot over 40% from three last year. And despite their defense being worse when he was on the floor, he actually matched up pretty well against some bigger and lankier defensive assignments. I don't know why you just let that player go. And kudos to Brooklyn for picking him
0: up. Yeah, Brooklyn had a, a great offseason in terms of like scouring the value bin. And the shocking part about it was so many teams did not want those guys that they scooped up. Like Everybody had bird rights or the opportunity to re-sign with their their old team, and, and they all ended up in Brooklyn. So I don't understand the Graham one either. I mean, if you're asking me would I rather have Graham for two years at a near minimum or Tony Parker for his home? <laughs> it's Graham to me.
1: Who's their most likely breakout candidate? All
0: right. It's a guy that I've been incredibly, incredibly high on, so I know I'm viewing this with bias, but it's Malik Monk. Um, I'm a huge Malik Monk guy. I had him one of my top three or four prospects when I was looking at at draft people in 2017. And I was left encouraged enough at the end of the season by Monk's play in order to, to... put him in this category. His final 10 games of the season, he played 20 minutes a game and scored 15.2 points per game, shooting 46% from the field and over 41% from three. I, I think he's if he can keep that momentum rolling a little bit, there really is an opportunity for him to to be a, a long-range threat that Charlotte really, really needs.
1: He is actually – I remain semi-high on him as well and is actually one of the reasons I was comfortable that Shea Gilch's Alexander didn't end up there because I really like him and think he would have been a great fit for Kemba Walker. But you look at what he should bring and kind of how he finished the season. Um, his finishing at the rim at Kentucky as well was really just lights out during during that season, and, and so that is kind of a good heartbringer for him if you can get that other guy who's going to attack downhill but can pull up as well um, like Kemba needs to get to the free throw line a lot more. I wonder if he'll ever get there. But I also think he's the pick here if if only because of a lack of other options. You have Miles Bridges who would be that's a fair pick, but yep. beyond him, you know, Jeremy Lamb had his mini breakout last year. There's there's no one else on this team that would even Willie Hernan Gomez probably isn't gonna play enough since I assume that the Hornets are going to try and make the playoffs at least for the first half of the season. Frank Kaminsky is just not good. I'm I'm out. I was never in on Frank Kaminsky, but I'm just out on him now. And so I yep. think he he kind of, when you look at Malik Monk, I think he has to be the pick, but I also do believe he is a worthy pick.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think so too. And again, I'm going to stay kind of planting my flag so deep within Monk Island that I'll probably be here for a long time. But uh, I think he's going to have a, a pretty solid season coming up.
1: Better Monk Island than Waiters Island. Agreed player most likely to be traded on the Hornets this year
0: it's it's got to be one of the two expirings Kemba or Jeremy Lamb Um, we've heard Kemba come up for a really long time now and I think if Charlotte attempts to win and realizes that it's just there's no shot of them making the playoffs far before the deadline they'll field calls on Kemba once again Uh, but I wouldn't be shocked if they parted from Lamb either and just decided that they can't kind of retain them you know they have 102 million dollars tied up next summer and their two best perimeter scorers lamb and walker are going to be free agents i think it's really difficult for them to keep both of them and they don't have the uh, the contracts that anybody would want to take nor the desire to part with their draft picks in order to pawn them off on somebody else so i think one of those two does not finish the season in charlotte
1: yeah if you i did rough i have a spreadsheet with like rough projections for every team for 2019 free agency. And if you take in cap holds uh, for Kemba Walker and Jeremy Lamb, and then you assume that let's say Charlotte gets the 10th pick, even if they waive Tony Parker and just get rid of his salary, they're still looking at being a tax team. Yep. And that's, that's just a problem. Uh, That's not where they want to be. Kemba's fascinating because if you pick him has the most likely player to be traded. And I still think he kind of is, It almost feels like they're not going to get anything for him because they've waited too long and no one's going to mortgage part of their future for the right to pay what will be a 29-year-old six-foot-one-inch point guard who's probably a top 25 player right now, but he will be looking. He's not someone you just throw max money at without thinking about it, and he might be someone then who's looking for that four- or five-year deal if he's going to re sign with an incumbent. Your best method of return might be can we pair Kemba Walker with one of these other less savory contracts? And then that's just the benefit that we get. And you're not, at this point, you're not going to get rid of Batum because then all of a sudden you're talking about moving $40 million in money, Uh, you know, $37, $38 million in money with Batum and Walker. Maybe you get off a Marvin Williams. You're probably not even going to get off a of Biombo. Uh, I don't know that MKG is a big enough liability to be like, hey, let's pair him with Walker and just get rid of him. Perhaps you could get rid of Cody Zeller. I don't think that deal is is great when you look at the big man landscape. Yeah. But it almost seems like if you're going to pick Walker, you have to pick someone else because that's Charlotte's best way to get any sort of value off of his departure is to offload crappy money. I don't. Otherwise, I don't really know what what team is going to give them a prospect or pick that's that's really truly valuable.
0: Well, we have to think of it through the, the lens of 2019 free agency, too. There's an expected cap spike a little bit once again. So many teams are going to have cap space. Why would you trade for Kemba and take back salary of $15 million plus a year from Charlotte if you could just use that $15 million and change next summer to throw at Kemba in free agency? I think there's going to be enough teams with space that are willing to slightly overpay in order to, to snatch him away from Charlotte and uh you know i think both new york and brooklyn which are teams that are local to where kemba grew up are going to be able to to take a hard look at him next summer so i i just i don't understand really why charlotte did not pull the trigger last trade deadline or maybe even earlier in this summer but um yeah there things are looking bleak
1: better def will this team have a better defense
0: or a better offense i'm i'm going to say defense um for mm. Yeah, and, and that's a, a little bit in, intriguing. I think that the the reason I tend to lean that way is because I, I think, A, their spacing is not going to be very phenomenal uh, this year, and, B, James Borrego, their new head coach, coming in from the San Antonio Spurs, they always – his assists don't they always have pretty solid defenses.
1: Yeah, I I think I'd probably go with you. It's tough because I look at they're going to have to run these bigger lineups um where you're where you're essentially saying that Marvin Williams is a four and you're never going to get him minutes at the five, but uh, Cody Zeller, if you're going to get him minutes at the five, Batum is still a valuable defender even if his offense is kind of not falling off a cliff, but I'm definitely less intrigued about him as your second Playmaker on the team, MKG still good. Bridges probably has some upside there. I, I, yeah, I think that's that's actually an easier pick as I as you kind of talk through it than I thought it was going to be.
0: And then I think the reason it's tough is because they have a lot of guys on the bottom end of that roster on their bench that are kind of one dimensional, more leaning towards offense. The guys like Monk or Kaminsky. Uh, but at the end of the day, I just their spacing on offense really really worries me.
1: Playoffs are not for this team.
0: I'm saying none. I actually think they end up finishing the season as one of the five five or six worst teams in the league. I think that they have a pretty pretty large drop off this year.
1: So do you think they're gonna slink well below that thirty six win benchmark?
0: I do. I think that uh I think they fall below thirty and, and probably even closer to twenty five.
1: Do you just think that's because they're event they're finally gonna pull the trigger and stage the teardown, or you just you look at it and they're just not talented enough?
0: Yeah, it's it's a it's a combination of both. I think you have to kind of forecast first and foremost the the records by mid-January are really what you look at, and then from there it's just each team sets their compass in a certain direction and they stick to it, and things are are pretty standard in the final two and a half months of the season. But if it, you know if I'm looking at this roster right now, I just I don't see enough dynamic offensive players outside of Kemba Walker, and I don't see enough spacing to provide in the court. And I I actually do think they missed Dwight Howard in some circumstances. They were a really, really good rebounding team, and they were fantastic with both their turnover and their free-throw differentials. And I think that those take a hit a little bit when Dwight leaves. So they're going to change the style of play that they have in Charlotte with a new coach, a little bit different personnel up front. But uh, I don't see it being successful at year one.
1: That brings us to the Miami Heat, 44-38. and Last year, they were 16th in net rating, 20th in offensive rating, 8th in defensive rating, all according to Cleaning the Glass. What was their best offseason move?
0: Ah, uh, their best offseason move would be not letting Wayne Ellington go for nothing.
1: That was basically their only move, but it's, That's actually, correct. it's actually true
0: yeah it it you know i I take a look at some of the guys that they've brought in on more camp invite type of contracts, guys like briante Weber Jarnell Stokes. I like those players uh I like Duncan Robinson, who they have on a two way contract. I think he's got a lot of intrigue to him, but a pretty quiet off season so far from Miami as pretty much anticipated because they're just their hands have been so tied both financially and not having any draft picks to dole out so um, you know, par for the course there with what you expect. But, yeah, I, th- I think it was a good thing that they were able to keep Wayne Ellington.
1: Just he's too valuable to their spacing at this point. They don't have – especially when they have sort of this dearth of guys who can hit pull-up jumpers at a consistent clip. Goran Dragic might not even be that type of player anymore. I think Dross Richardson will get there. Dion Waiters already thinks he's there. He's not. Tyler Johnson probably isn't that guy. And so you look at Justice Winslow as he'll be – if, he, if you can get good standstill shooting from him, kind of like you did last year, that's a huge benefit. So that just makes Wayne Ellington so much more important to them.
0: Yeah, they used him a lot in so many great ways. You know, I, I'm always looking for my own team that I, I coach here. Unique ways to leverage shooters, because that's one of the, the things that we do well on our team. And I always go back to looking at what Eric Spolstra runs for Wayne Ellington and how he gets him open. A lot of combo screening stuff. He's always moving, and... Like you said, they don't have another guy that can fill that role. So for a team that you know needs a little bit of a punch of offense that's reliable because they are so spread out and deep in terms of uh, how they play, I think Ellington was a really important piece for them to add.
1: This might be a more of what should the Heat have done that they didn't type category, but their biggest lost or, or worst offseason move. I don't really know that you can point to... Either one of those. So, this might be more of a what should the Heat have done that they did not do?
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to give you a cop out answer here with something that's a little bit to be determined, but it really is that they should, when the offseason is said and done, have Dwayne Wade on their roster. I think if he. Nice. If he goes, yeah. If he goes to China, I think that that's a loss for them. Um, he's, he's a good veteran player and a leader and somebody that still can help them a little bit on the court. They're a team that's built off of depth and he's a guy that they can count on. They don't have to play heavy minutes in the regular season. They know he'll be there in crunch time, and just somebody that, that helps them in um, so many ways, a multitude of ways that aren't necessarily uh, thought of in terms of on-court contributions that I think he would be a great piece for them to, to make sure that they retained.
1: Most likely breakout, and please tell me it's Rodney Magruder.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm not going to go him. I'm going with uh, Bam Bam Adebayo. I'm a, I'm a big fan of Bam. I think that he's – the sky is the limit for a guy like him. And I'm sure we'll get into it at some point. Um, not a, I'm not a white side guy. And the potential for a five combination, Olenek and Adebayo, is really, really intriguing for Miami. And those are two guys that I would love to watch if Miami commits to going a little bit smaller, a little more pace and space and letting those two guys run the five.
1: I did not foresee, when you're comparing it to Hassan Whiteside, of course, but I did not foresee Bam Adebayo being such a competent passer. I just didn't, that was, and I don't cover the draft for these incoming rookies until they really touch the NBA extensively, but I just, I didn't see that coming at all.
0: And, you know, Ben Falk wrote about this at Cleaning the Glass last year, uh, it's a fantastic article about there's only one ball in the NBA. And you think about it through the lens of the Oklahoma City Thunder through their past. I mean, guys like Victor Oladipo have gone on after standing there and not being able to get the kind of living up to their full potential because they're sharing a basketball with other superstar players that need touches. I think Adebayo was kind of a victim of that when he was at Kentucky, that when you go to a school like that where there are so many strong players, playmakers on the perimeter and on the wings that have the ball in their hands, you probably get pigeonholed and pegged as a guy that's going to be a little more back to the basket, a little more screen and roll when you're a big guy. And he really can handle the ball in transition and be a, somebody that pushes tempo. He's a very good passer from the high post. Like There's a lot to like about him. And there are things that we just were unable to see at Kentucky because of the way that he was utilized. The
1: and as you mentioned that Kelly Olynyk Bam bio front court is super intriguing. Uh, they played eight hundred and ninety six possessions together last year. Miami's net rating was a plus ten point eight in that time. They scored one hundred ten point three points per one hundred possessions while allowing just ninety nine point four. A defensive rating in the ninety seventh percentile, and that Bam Adebayo Bio's super switchy on defense. That was something else I didn't really. I think when you see these incoming bigs, even when they're more mobile than not, uh, you, you, for, you you don't expect them to kind of be able to cover space as well. And I thought he did a really nice job of that. But I also do believe this speaks to Kelly Olenek has kind of always been that underrated defender. I think you can count on him to make the easy, obvious, maybe slightly harder than normal reads when he's on the perimeter or even just around the rim. And that is that's a combination you need to find a way to get to. And if that involves benching Hassan Wiesel altogether, or I don't, I don't even know what you sweeten the pot with to move him at this point. We might talk about that in a second. That that's just an interesting combination. If you're looking to kind of plan for the future, but also remain relevant right now, which your payroll kind of demands that you have to.
0: Yeah. I'm, um, you know, Whiteside is just, he's a very intriguing dilemma for me. And, and honestly, as we're looking at this division, he's probably the most fascinating player this upcoming season for me because he's clashed with with management, with the coaching staff there in Miami, and been fairly vocal about how he wants and believes he should be on the court during crunch time. But you take a look at his defensive performance in the playoffs against the Sixers right now, and Joel Embiid ate him I mean, his defensive rating when Whiteside was on court was 110 for Miami, which is was terrible. He had a negative VORP, which is value above you know replacement player, and uh, minus 9.6 box plus minus. That's per hundred possessions. He's 9.6 points worse than the average replacement player. The average replacement player. He just got exposed by stretch fives. And as the league continues to trend towards smaller lineups and more guys that can stretch out the floor and can take Whiteside off the bounce from the top of the key, I really worry about him. I just I don't think of him as somebody who can impose his style of play upon other players on either end of the court. And I think Miami might be better off not playing him for long stretches of time, especially against stretch fives.
1: Yeah, I'm with you there. My breakout pick, though— I agree with you on bio. I want it to be Magruder because I really like him. And I'm this probably doesn't. I'm not sure if it counts because it was kind of last year. But I could see Josh Richardson kind of making the fringe star leap this year. He kind of defensively, I, he just reminds me of a taller Marcus Smart because of his positional versatility. I don't. I wouldn't be surprised to see him guard more power forwards this year, um, particularly when they're on the block. Uh, he's already a pretty good shooter and something that he showed flashes of in the playoffs, which would be the probably the second to last step in his game. You still want to see him be more of just a creator for others off the dribble, but he started to hit shots off the bounce. And if he's going to hit those at a league average clip or close to it or better than that, and you can depend on him to create his own offense, uh, you're looking at a really good player. He's probably Miami's only top 50 player right now, unless you remain super high on, on Dragic. And I'm very interested to see if they try and broaden his horizons and just expand his role a little bit this year.
0: Yeah, it, you know it was really interesting. Richardson led the Heat in minutes per game during the regular season, uh, which is probably not something you think of when you're looking at a team that has Goran Dragic or you know Hassan Whiteside on it. But he he led them in minutes per game, and he was fourth in the post. He played 26 minutes a night. So, you know, I, I hope he does take that next step forward. I love his game. I love his combination of shooting, playmaking, size, and and defensive prowess. Uh, but I, I, you know, I, I think with him, there's such a logjam at those positions in Miami too that if yeah. the right matchup dictates going somewhere else, or a guy like Dion Waiters or Dwayne Wade or Wayne Ellington come in off the bench and get you know a hot hand, that I think his minutes get squeezed just a little bit.
1: Uh, who's the player most likely to be traded on this roster?
0: Oh, can I say the 2019 pick? <laughs> Wow, yeah, that's
1: <laughs> that's probably fair.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's probably a combination of that and and one of their their contracts they want to get off, like a, a Whiteside or a Tyler Johnson. I, you know, they've been handcuffed by the Stepien rule. You can't trade draft picks in consecutive years. They did not have their 2018 or their 2021 pick. Now that that draft is done, they can trade their 2019. And I would not be surprised if they can find some... Foolish suitor, willing to absorb some contract out there from them and duck them under uh, you know, a little bit lower salary for next year. I think that they take that opportunity.
1: You know, if I'm the Kings and Miami's willing to put loose protection on that pick, I'm offering any one of my expiring contracts for Tyler Johnson. Mm-hmm. No, like thought... Whiteside's a no-go because you're already overloaded with bigs. It would be That's funny right. to see him end up I mean, back in Sacramento. So, but tyler johnson would be somebody i'd do it james johnson doesn't fit their timeline that you definitely don't want Dion waiters when he has three years left on his deal but i'd see if they're willing to do that or you know even at this point if they were just willing to include justice winslow as a sweetener and maybe he's too high a cost um but maybe not because he's entering restricted free agency next year the kings need wings so i i would be if i'm them i'm, I'm kind of monitoring that situation as you get closer to the trade deadline
0: yeah, yeah, it's, it's intriguing. But the thing with Tyler Johnson, remember, Sacramento doesn't need any any two guards or anything, right? They had one. That's why they didn't pick Luka Doncic.
1: Yeah, which is. And then, of course, they signed Yogi Farrell and tried to sign Zach Levine. That was such.
0: Ugh. And traded Garrett Temple. Yeah,
1: we yeah. can't. Um, enough about the Kings, because I'm about to get heated on them, too. <sighs> this team, better defense or offense for the Heat?
0: I love their offense. And I'm, I'm going to for that reason, I think no coach in the league is better at understanding spacing and getting all of his guys to stand in the right spots off the ball than Eric Spolstra. So I'm just so infatuated with their offense. It's hard for me not to choose that. But they're a really solid defensive team as well. And and like we've mentioned, they have three different guys that can play the center, kind of anchor front courts for them. So based on the matchup, they can be a really stingy and tough defensive team.
1: Yeah, the defense is the pick for me just for uh – Two primary reasons. I just look at it. The off-the-bounce shot creation's is a, a concern for me. There are players who will tr- who can try and do it, but I don't think they're going to be efficient. I think Dion Waiters ultimately takes away from you on offense if you have to play him. Ditto for white side. And if you are going to play white side minutes, uh, your defense is probably just going to be better. He's still a quality defensive rebounder. He'll block shots. He's not Bam bio, But even if you're going to rely on Bam Adebayo, um, he's just a valuable defender. And so I, I do ultimately think it will be their defense. Quick tidbit, uh, I didn't even realize it was this low. Miami's offensive rating with Deion Waiters on the floor last year was 99.9, which is atrocious. Playoffs? Not great.
0: <laughs> playoffs or not nah, for the Heat? I am going to say playoffs. And I Ooh. think one of the reasons for that is every single year, they tend to have a little bit of a surge post-All-Star break. That Spolster gets all the pieces clicking. And This might be a year, again, injury permitting, but where they have everybody back from last year's team, and with the same cast of characters, uh, a healthy D on waiters back into the fold, I, I think that they've got a chance to really wow some people with their depth.
1: We all know it happened in 2016-2017, but last year, after the All-Star break, to your point, the Heat were sixth in point differential per 100 possessions, so that kind of supports that and it's probably the east is weird but there aren't a lot of challengers to kind of take miami's playoff spot at this point do you think they're gonna do you think they can make it out of that's probably dumb do you think they can make it out of the first round uh do you think they're gonna win more than 44 games this year or are they just kind of like a team that their situation is so fluid you could say yes they're gonna get to the playoffs but you have really no way of forecasting their ceiling
0: yeah i think that's kind of how we have to attack it with them a little bit. Um, you know, playoffs, it's so matchup driven. I think that they probably stood a better chance against any team other than Philadelphia last year, just because Joel Embiid was the white side kryptonite and they didn't really have an answer for that. So it really is matchup dependent. Like I think that they would, they would do really well in a four or five matchup against like Milwaukee, for example. So it, it does depend on how many games they win and who they draw in the first round. But uh, I've, I love what Spolster does with them in Miami. I really like their depth and the amount of unique pieces that they can throw out there to combat any different type of team.
1: We now get to move on to the Orlando Magic, who are coming off a 25-57 and 57 season. Um, they ranked 25th in net rating, 25th. In offensive rating and twentieth in defensive rating, according to Cleaning the Glass, what was their best offseason move?
0: For me, the the best move they made was drafting Mo Bamba, and it, to me, he was the the best overall prospect in this year's draft. That might seem a little bit like a hot take, but he's massive. He can protect the rim. And he's got a lot of ability to stretch the floor, which, again, a stretch five that can protect the rim is kind of the the golden goose in today's game. And I really, really think that bomba has got a chance to be special. But I need to put a disclaimer in that. Any big guy is only as good as the spacing they put around him and the guards that can get him the ball. And right now, Orlando does not have anybody that's a reliable pick-and-roll creator or that can get their own shot easily. Or spacing that they can put around Bamba to the point where he somehow can develop. Okay,
1: so what would you view as the the Magic's worst off move, or or just their biggest loss? And I I think you're you're going to tilt more towards, given that they didn't really lose anyone of significance. I'm assuming you'll tilt towards something that they failed to do.
0: Yeah, they they failed to get somebody who is either a. Creator on the perimeter or a knockdown three-point shooter. I don't think of players as being within this long-term, you know, conservative view of of positions where we have the traditional pass-first point guards or you know a power forward as somebody who plays down low. I, I think positionless basketball is the age now, and Orlando is trying a really unique experiment with a lot of length and playmakers that have athleticism in the front court. But in order for that to really be an experiment worth analyzing. We need to space the floor properly, and I just don't look at their backcourt and see a lot of guys that are either effective off the dribble, that can serve as secondary or even primary ball handlers, or good enough three-point shooters to really space the floor. They just they did not add a lot of depth at the guard position. It's just Jerry and Grant and DJ Augustine right now, and I'm I'm really fascinated to see how Steve Clifford in his first year there juggles all of the the uh, uniqueness of that roster. But that is something that I think was a little bit of a shortcoming on the front office side, was just not adding that one more shooting piece on the perimeter.
1: It's also weird because their best move was probably draft. It was drafting Obama because I think he could be really good. But now you've also put the Magic have put themselves in a situation where Jonathan Isaac probably is going to have to be a three or Aaron Gordon's going to have to function like a three or where just in general, because you don't have this point guard to set everybody up, you're going to need one or both of them to create off the dribble. And I hate that. I don't see, maybe Isaac, because he's still kind of so raw, can get there. But I'm not, the way they've developed Gordon, I'm completely out on. I think he should be this guy who works in transition, maybe can give you a little pick and pop potential, but mostly should be this pick and roll diver. He shot under 30% on pull-up jumpers last year. Jonathan Isaac, limited time and volume, under 18% on pull-up jumpers. And that kind of exacerbates the, the point guard issue. But it also just means that you're going to have to try and continue to do this same old thing with at least Aaron Gordon. And I don't know where that really gets this team. The the defensive potential is interesting when you look at Bamba with Gordon and, and Isaac. But particularly without a point guard, I just don't know what this team does on, on offense. Evan Fournier and even Jonathan Simmons can run some half court sets, but that's not you don't want to look at either of those guys as your second best playmaker, let alone your first one.
0: Well they, you know, they were 28th in three point percentage last season. And yeah, they drafted a guy that could be a stretch five, but they did nothing to really address that issue through free agency or or even with with you know any other smaller pickups that they made. I mean Jerry and Grant's a solid playmaker, but I still don't I view him as a, a long-term backup at best. I don't think that he's a guy that you want given the keys to any type of offensive responsibility to. So a a lot of intrigue. Again, you take a look at some of the players and the talent that they have on their roster. I like them. I like them a lot individually. I'm really worried about the mesh because as great of an experiment as this is going to be and probably kind of a fun train wreck to watch. It's still a train wreck.
1: Yeah. The, the defense could end up being good right off the bat, too, because Simmons is a pretty good defender, and in the 276 possessions that Isaac and Gordon played together last year, most of which, or pretty much all of which, came with another big on the floor, so you plug Mobamba in there, they allowed. Uh, they had a defensive rating of 95.2. The offensive rating, though, was even worse at 94.9, and so train wreck is probably uh, the perfect way to describe their offensive potential. Kind of knowing that, though, who do you think is the most likely pr- player to break out on this roster then?
0: You know, I, I said Bamba is is going to end up being a really, really strong player. I don't know if he has that foundational type of impact on year one. So I'm going to throw a little bit of a curveball here. Jonathan Isaac is is probably due for a big year just in terms of what they need out of somebody offensively and his versatility on the defensive end he's got eons of of potential and i think this is the year where it's kind of make or break whether he really kind of steps up and proves that he's he's going to be something in the league and i'm going to go ahead and bet on him because i just i like the tools that he has he played well during the summer league this year his shot looks good so uh, i'm i'm gonna go uh I'm I'm going to be pretty strong on, on Isaac right now.
1: Yeah, I, I really like him too. I just don't know. It's this Aaron Gordon situation still for me. I feel like I'm running in circles, but when he was playing a lot of three, it made me like him less, and I'm hoping that doesn't happen with Isaac this season. Yep. Player most likely to be traded for the Magic?
0: It's Vucevic, and for that exact reason that you just mentioned, that they need to fill up more ways to spread the front court out a little bit so if they clear a little bit more time for Bamba at the five and even play some lineups where they go with Gordon and Isaac as just a four five tandem I think that that's pretty intriguing if Bomba's on the bench and the only way they get there is by trying to find some value for Vucevic. he's on an expiring about 12.8 million and he's a quietly good player I mean he's a career 15 and 10 guy last year he had three and a half assists to only two turnovers per game He's, he had five games last season where he put up stat lines of 15, 7, and seven. And he's developed his three point shot a little bit. He's above thirty percent. So he's a guy that I just I really think has become a little bit underrated because he's never played in the postseason with with this team in Orlando, and they've just been so bad for so long. We kind of overlook those guys. But he's a good player that could be a, a really nice sixth man type of bench piece for a big guy. Now, what team out there needs a big man? To come off their bench and do what Vucevic does, I really don't know. But at some point, there's there might be some injury that takes place or something that really allows them to shop him.
1: Yeah, that was what I was going to go to as well. Is you, it doesn't look like there would be a clear cut suitor right now. At least not a team that is in a position to where maybe they could use him, but that they really like the Lakers could use uh, Vucevic, but they don't really have the incentive to give up anything for him. And so maybe it's a matter of injuries and uh, his market develops from there this is low-hanging fruit better defense or offense
0: oh man defense come on
1: there it'll be steve clifford probably deserves at least one coach of the year vote if the magic don't rank in the bottom five of offensive efficiency
0: right and and clifford's track record has always been very very strong on the defensive side of things And, and you know on the topic it's just it's a a Interesting hire to me because in his time in Charlotte, he's proven to be a very almost conservative type of coach that they run. Some very black and white type of sets on offense. They're a great rebounding team. They take care of the basketball. Those are the kind of the profiles of teams that don't take a lot of risks. And with the unique build of this roster, you almost have to take some risks, X's and O's, Y's you know put in players in in positions that are a little bit unconventional and i'm really curious to see how clifford blends with that
1: i am too i do think he was more adaptable than people gave him credit for in charlotte at the same mm-hmm. time I, I don't look at orlando's roster and feel like they gave him a lot of options to work with anyway and maybe that's where those sim- simplistic sets will will help out pretty easy again playoffs or not nah, for the magic
0: no no playoffs sorry Do they win
1: more than 25 games or under 25 games?
0: I'm going to take the under on this one. uh, But, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised. I think there's 25 is pretty much a good plus minus for them right now.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm kind of with you there as well. That leaves us with the final team in the Southeast Division, the Washington Wizards, who were 43 and 39 last year. Uh, Their vitals were. They were 14th in net rating, 14th in offensive efficiency, and 15th in defensive efficiency, epitomizing mediocrity pretty clearly. (laughs) What was their best offseason move?
0: So I think if you look at it in a vacuum, they didn't have a ton of moves that were really, really strong. But if you kind of play the dominoes as they're falling – little bit. I thought that once they got rid of Marcin Gortat, and you know were able to to fill the void that they had up front with Dwight Howard, I really don't mind that move. That for the you know the taxpayer mid level, getting him to be, be their starter in that group, I think talent wise, is as good of a get as you're you're going to have. And stylistically, you, you know they're used to playing the way that kind of Howard blends in best with because. Let's face it, that's what they had to do with Gortat the last few years. So I, I kinda like that move.
1: I'm I actually would almost put it's not it's not their worst offseason move. I just I struggle with the logic there because and I, as a coach, you should be able to tell me if I'm batshit crazy here. But you look at a player like John Wall, who the whole he can't shoot trope is kind of overblown. Uh, He's hitting 34% of his threes since 2013-2014, but he also has not hit 35% or more of his threes in consecutive seasons ever. And you're now losing space to me because Marcin Gortat, at least the concept of him, allowed you to create extra room via pick-and-pops. Dwight Howard cannot pick-and-pop. He's going to roll to the basket. And now John Wall's lanes to the rim, to me, just aren't going to be as wide open. And so then you find yourself relying on him you know, he'll still work the corners and find shooters. He'll still find Dwight Howard for lobs, but now you find yourself relying on him to me, uh, to hit more of his pull-up jumpers. And I just, I don't see it. He shot under 30% on pull-up jumpers last year. I know he was de- dealing with, um, left knee issues basically all year, but he's never been that dominant pull-up guy anyway. And so I'm wondering if by bringing in Howard that they've Maybe if they haven't compromised their entire offense, have they maybe compromised John Wall's value a little bit?
0: It's an interesting point, and maybe something that I overlook a little bit in terms of where Wall's shot profile probably comes from with the change. Um, I never really thought of Gortat as any type of threat to score outside of 10 feet. So for me, it, it almost seems like it's a wash. Gortat's the best screener in the league, bar none. Uh, I I absolutely love watching him just obliterate guards on the perimeter. Like He is an unbelievable screener. And that might not be something that Dwight can do, but he still has gravity when he rolls towards the rim because, yeah, he's gotten older. He's a little bit less effective. But you throw a ball 12 feet in the air right in front of the rim, he's going to be the one to go get it and finish it. And for me, that's what opens up the corners a little bit more for John Wall necessarily than any type of pick and pop threat
1: that is more than fair who do you have at, what was their biggest loss or what was their worst offseason move
0: um I uh I think with this one you know I I thought that they were gonna stretch beyond Mahimi. I really did and the windows not necessarily closed for that but their payroll is absurdly high and I'm kind of surprised that they did not get a little bit lower from that uh, from that standpoint. They're over 136000000 million. They're like 7 or $8 million over the tax apron right now. So I was just surprised that they were just willing to swallow the, uh, the salaries that they had. And I, I thought that stretching Mahimi might be a very easy way to get out of it. Scary
1: proposition for them. Mahinmi, Wall, Beal, and Porter combined to make about $108 million next season. The salary cap as of now is set for $109 million. And if Dwight Howard picks up his player option, you're all of a sudden capped out. And now you're looking at Markeith Morris, Austin Rivers, Kelly Oubre, and Thomas Sadoransky all entering free agency. And you, I, I don't know how you avoid the tax without stretching Mahinmi there
0: right and they only have one other player under contract for next year one one player troy brown their first round draft pick they have one so there's they got to do something in order to get under that money and again i'm surprised that they didn't stretch mahimi where you stretch him now it's spread over five years it's like a 10 million dollar reduction this year because it's only i think somewhere around six and change on the books for the next five seasons and that $10 million reduction this year gets you under the luxury tax so that you're not doing a repeater payment next year when you inevitably go over because you just have to sign a whole new roster.
1: It's They're in an interesting dilemma because how do you keep this big three together? It's not even a big three, but looking at Wall's extension, and you're going to have... Uh, Otto Porter and Bradley Beal will hit free agency by 2021 at the latest. Beal is slated for 2021. I, I think Otto Porter will pick up his player option and hit it the same year. You stretch Mahimi, you have, I've, you have that money on the books. I'm typically against it, but if you want to keep those three together and you're going to have to think about paying the tax in, in more seasons to come, it, it might just be something that you have to do. I am wondering if, uh, Austin Rivers is going to become like a sneaky important uh, part of, of this team just because I think he's clearly surpassed the whole joke status. I do wonder if if he can replicate this. This is exactly what they've needed kind of in the second unit because Scott Brooks doesn't like to stagger Bradley Beal and John Wall too much and they've also been reluctant it seems to kind of give Otto Porter a chance to I think he can probably do a little bit more on the ball, but they've been reluctant to expand that role, and they've tried it with Morris and Kelly Oubre, and it hasn't really worked out too well. You look at Austin Rivers last year. Uh, among all the players to attempt at least three pull-up three-pointers per game, um, he he hit 37.6% of those looks, and the only players to hit a higher percentage while shooting at least three pull-up, three-pointers per game were Kemba Walker, James Harden, Kyle Lowry, Stephen Curry, Kyrie Irving, Tyreek Evans. Marshawn Brooks is in there too, but he only played in seven games <laughs> for the Grizzlies, but that's always a fun add-on. He could end up being sneaky big to, to their success this upcoming season.
0: He's a good player, and it gets overlooked a little bit because a lot of people made a joke out of the relationship between him and his father in, in Los Angeles there. But he's he's a very important piece for them. And like you mentioned, the Scott Brooks not wanting to juggle his his rotations a little bit and keep Wall and Beal together means that they've they've always missed that piece behind John Wall to be kind of a, a playmaking point guard and, and a guy that can really make something happen. Ty Lawson looked solid in that role in the postseason, but Rivers is an upgrade from that. And if they can get consistent production out of him the way that he, he did in Los Angeles, their bench has already taken a huge step forward.
1: And some of, I don't know how often you want to go to this, but I, I like the idea of maybe playing him Beal and wall together for small stretches because you could really just obliterate uh, if Otto Porter's on the court at the four as well. And then maybe, or maybe you go super, you have super small with Mark Keith Morris at the five there. Uh, Mike Scott was a pretty big loss for them too, to me. Uh, I don't know if Jeff Green's going to be able to sort of replicate that, but is there a player on this roster that you could see breaking out? Uh there really there there aren't a lot of candidates. It's basically Troy Brown, Saturansky, or Kelly Oubre Jr., unless I'm wrong, in which case, please point me to the correction.
0: No, it's it's it really is those three. Um you know, I've been an Oubre believer simply because I Yes. I, yes, I, I, I can't he, find them anywhere. He adds a dimension defensively with his length and, and activity and, and ability to get into the ball a little bit that gives guys like Waller or Beal a little bit of a breather. And I I toy back and forth with this because I think they need his defense to be paired with Austin Rivers a little bit, where they put Rivers on a combo guard and not the primary ball handler, and then just use Oubre as a guy that just just eats up opposing ball handlers. Um, But I've always liked the thought of putting Oubre with that starting group and going with a, a more spread lineup where Porter's at the four, Oubre at the three along with uh, Wallen Beal. So, you know, I I think he's a versatile piece for them. And because I have a lot of optimism for how Scott Brooks can use him in a lot of different ways that will be successful, I think he's probably the one guy I would go ahead and say his role maybe expands a little bit than it did last year.
1: If he can approach league average from three this year, uh, he was at 34% last year, I believe. He's one of those sneaky candidates to secure a small ransom in restricted free agency. And so mm-hmm. you, you look at, this is his defensive range, and this doesn't necessarily account for his effectiveness in these situations, but it does show how much that, how often, excuse me, Washington is able to move him around or the range at which they're able to move him around. Here are the 10 players he guarded most by possessions last year. Ben Simmons, Jeremy Lamb, Chris Middleton, Stanley Johnson, Torian Prince, Marcus Morris, Jason Tatum, Lou Williams, Lance Stevenson and Kevin Durant and no one on the wizard spent more time guarding Ben Simmons other than Otto Porter. That yep. defensive range is valuable just to even be able to throw his, his length at some of those bigger guys, or to be able to have this guy with that length and with his size to go after these smaller guards, these shooting guards, um, sometimes point guards. He spent a lot of time on guys like them as well. If he can, you don't need him to do stuff on the move offensively. If you can just get him to hit more of his threes, uh, he could turn into a smallish big deal. And you look at his restricted free agency, it'd be a blessing and a curse. If he makes that leap, it's probably great for the Wizards' 2018-2019 season, but I don't know what it's going to do to their payroll uh, looking ahead or whether they'd even be able to afford to resign him.
0: Yeah, see, to me, he's a guy that if I'm the Wizards in their front office, I'm I'm trying to get him to sign an extension before the season begins because of that. Yeah, because they can't afford to match him if he plays really, really well and gets a big offer next summer with the expanded cap. They just they don't have the room. They've screwed themselves a little bit with their their long term space. So they need to get faith at some point get bodies on the roster, and they can do the cheapest they get him at is when they do it right now.
1: Here's an interesting question for this team. Who's the most likely player to be traded?
0: Uh, Jody Meeks. And for, for no reason other than the fact that I think he's a little bit dead weight that they'll just kind of want to trade away. And his salary fits in some trade exceptions around the league that if you, you know, they might get rid of a far future, heavily protected second round pick just to get rid of him and then, you know, sign some guy on a minimum exception late in the, uh, the end of the season.
1: If they're able to get rid of both him and Jason Smith, I would wonder if they'd look at then moving Mark Keith Morris because that he's probably a player that you could just send somewhere um, while saving money. And that could moving those three players, it's a big deal. But if you move those three players, you then all of a sudden put yourself in a position to possibly evade the tax. And that opens up things for you to do this this off season just knowing that hey maybe we don't need to express mahimi and we can afford the tax for a year and figure it out next summer just seems like a long shot but if you can end up uh paying a small price to move smith um because he's the one that I think would require a sweetener where meeks maybe someone's just willing to absorb him and hope mm-hmm. that he can shoot uh, that might be something that they could find themselves looking at, particularly if Oubre ends up making the leap, and you think that between him, Troy Brown, and Jeff Green, that you don't necessarily need Mark Keith Morris.
0: Yeah, that I mean, that's an an interesting thought. I don't know if they'll get to that point this season, though, where Morris doesn't have a lot of value. I think simply because of all of the guys there that could play stretch five, he's the one. So, um, you know, we'll see how things kind of unfold. And
1: Wow, the shade of Jeff Green there. Come on
0: well to me he's more of a, a stretch four than a stretch five and i just I, I think that in the you know when he was in cleveland that they had the right option of guys around him for him to fit that stretch five role
1: i would actually call him a non-stretch four but anyway for a uh, better defense or offense for this team which i also find to be an interesting question
0: yeah, it's a fascinating question. Really fascinating, and I'm going to say defense just because I think you know the tiebreaker for me is going to revolve around Dwight Howard, and I think he's just slightly bit better on the defensive end than he is the offensive. So for that reason, I uh, I'm going to lean that way. But it's close. They're probably going to be the same statistical area they were last year, hovering around that middle of the pack in the NBA, right at uh, at the 15th spot.
1: Playoffs or not. Nah?
0: Yeah, they're a playoff team. Um, You know whether where they range, kind of from like four to eight, remains to be seen. I think there are a lot of moving pieces in the Eastern Conference still. Um, I think they could get up to the the four or the five seed if they they really do click on all cylinders. And and I still don't think we've seen the maximum that we can get out of Wall and Beal as a tandem.
1: Yeah, I I do think they're definitely a playoff team. I am kind of interested to see where they. End up, I I do think this is a scenario though where I can't see them falling lower than sixth because maybe I maybe you could talk me into the Heat being better than them. I you can't talk me into the Pistons being better than them. Uh, I think you could say the Pacers, Bucks, Sixers, Celtics, and Raptors are all clearly going to be better than them. Uh, but just looking at their floor though, I would be a little bit surprised to see them drop below sixth. I'm not shocked because. Spoelstra in Miami, coupled with them kind of having some continuity on the roster, maybe they get there. But if they dropped below sixth, I would be a little taken aback.
0: Yeah, I just you know, the the Eastern Conference is is not very strong right now. That's kind of the theme with this division that we've been talking about all night. It's just there's not a lot of strength. There's not a lot of teams that we have supreme confidence in. And I know a lot of people are a little bit down on what Washington's done the last couple summers, and their cap situation's a little bit murky. Like, Make no mistake, this is a really talented team. Their three-headed monster of Wall, Beal, and Porter is really strong, and they all complement each other pretty well when things are clicking. Now, I still don't think we've seen them complement each other to the best of their abilities, and I think that they still have a little bit of issues with their depth, but they're a solid playoff team. And they could give somebody trouble in the postseason series if the matchups are right and they are firing on all cylinders.
1: Well, there you have it, folks. That is the Cardwood Knox Southeast Division Preview, aided heavily by Adam Spinella, the Washington and Jefferson assistant men's basketball coach, also a writer for B-Ball Breakdown, Fast Model, and NBA Math as well. You need to follow him on Twitter, excellent basketball mind at Spinella14, 14, S-P-I-N-E-L-L-A-14. 14. I just want to remind everyone to continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us on iTunes. Please overlook some of the technical difficulties we've uh, had throughout this episode. We got through it. Um, if there was any breakups in the the vocals, we apologize, but you'll, you you got way more than enough of Adam Spinella's insight. It could have been my my end of my internet. I'll just... I'll blame it on myself because Adam Adam Spinelli is too perfect for it to be his internet in my book. Um, Please, if you want, actually don't please, you don't have to follow me, but if you want to, you can find me at Dan Favale F-A-V-A-L-E. You can find Andy at Andrew D. Bailey. Hardwood Knox is at Hardwood Knox. Our sponsor, MBA Math, is at MBA underscore math. Until next time, I leave you with a shout out to Kyle Anderson but not anyone else because Andy is not here. Lowe's knows you'll do it right and do it yourself to make refreshing changes to your kitchen and bath. We do it right too with up to 40% off select kitchen and bath essentials during the final days of our refresh for less kitchen and bath event. That's up to 40% off faucets, vanities, shower heads, and more. For kitchen and bath updates that keep you within budget, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offer valid through 3-6. See store for details, U.S. only. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.